0: Well, good evening, church. Welcome to APD, Ask Pastor Don. Uh, if you have a question, send it to APD at cdb.org. We'll try and get to as many as possible. This one came from several different people, and I kind of strung the thoughts together. So the question came from others, though the wording of it is, is my wording, just to kind of condense things a little bit. Pastor Don, I've always been troubled by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians about eating meat offered to idols. If it's not a sin to eat meat for the more knowledgeable Christian and it is a sin for the weaker Christian, doesn't this just make sin a relative issue? It's a pretty good question. The uh, questioner doesn't actually uh, give the reference for it, so I'm going to do that. Let me read a couple of texts, but I'll start with the one mentioned in the question, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where Paul deals with this issue as he writes to the church of Corinth. Here's what Paul says, uh, 8, starting at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed, there are many gods, he has it in quotes, and many lords. Yet for us, there's, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, here's, here's the point. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols. That's a very important phrase. People had come out of different religious backgrounds, converted to Christ. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. In other words, they think that there's something in this meat, this food, that, that it gets changed because, after all, it was offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, Is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. It's not a matter of diet. But take care that this right of yours, now speaking to the mature Christians, take care that this right of yours, that's the right to eat meat offered to idols, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak that one whose conscience is really bugged by it. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, even though it bugs him to do it? 11. And so by your knowledge, your understanding that it, it idols nothing and it doesn't change the meat. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And then Paul says, a brother. See, this isn't just another person out there. A brother for whom Christ died. You're supposed to see all that's invested in your brother's life. Twelve. Thus, sinning against your brothers, listen, and wounding their conscience, wounding their conscience when it is weak, You sin, that's the knowledgeable one now, the mature one. You sin, interestingly, not against your brother. You sin against Christ. Wow. So here's my quick answer, and then we have to unpack it. My quick answer is no. I don't think there are any relative sins in the Scriptures. I don't think any of the sins pointed out in this passage is relative By that, I mean Paul seems to describe two different sins in this text, and they're both, I think, actual, real, guilt-producing, forgiveness-requiring sins. They, They are both the kind of sins that separate from God. They're both the kind of sins that need authentic forgiveness, and they call for forgiveness in just the same way that sins like lying and stealing and committing adultery require forgiveness. In fact, I'm not sure that I know of any reference to sins in the Bible that would make sin relative. I'm not aware of any. And I think that whenever the Bible uses the term sin, it only has guilt-producing, I don't mean guilt feelings, I mean actual guilt-producing God-defying, forgiveness requiring sins in view. Now, before we start to unpack that involved text in 1 Corinthians 8, let me just do one other thing. I'd like to pull in another passage that deals with the very same issue, and it'll help shed some light on the text we're actually studying from 1 Corinthians 8. So, I want to look at Romans chapter 14. I'm going to look at 13 through 15, and then just to save time, I'll jump to verse 20 and read to 23, okay? So Romans 14, 13 to 15, and then 20 to 23. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather, so here's the thing he says to decide. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And Paul does just what he did in 1 Corinthians 8, a brother. I know, Paul speaks of himself, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. It's meat. It's just meat. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That's a strange sentence. It is unclean. For anyone who thinks it unclean. 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That's the mature one with the understanding. You're not walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy. Note that word. I, was, I would underline if I was doing that. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What does that mean, destroy? Destroy. Now 20, do not for the sake of food destroy, there it is again, the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is wrong, not sort of wrong. It's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything. So this this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. There's a whole bunch of things. Don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Stumbling isn't he's just going to be bugged by what you're doing. Stumbling is he's going to be encouraged to participate in what you're doing, even though his conscience doesn't doesn't let him do it. That's what 1 Corinthians 8 is all about. 22. 22. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. That's the knowledgeable one. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on on himself for what he approves. Now listen to this sentence, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not... Proceed from faith is sin. It is sin. So I said a minute ago that the sin committed in the First Corinthians 8 passage, in my view, was a real sin. And I would say the same thing about the Romans 14 text that we just read. There, in other words, there aren't any sort of sins here. The sins, and I want to show in a minute that there are two specific sins, plural. The sins committed are real, and they are guilt-producing before God. Now, having said that, let me, let me make myself clear. I don't want to be misunderstood. I believe there are two different sins committed in these two texts. But neither sin is found in the meat itself. It isn't the meat the meat, other items are mentioned as well, but let's just, for the sake of simplicity, we'll just focus on the meat. The meat is only the occasion for the two sins committed. It's not sinful in itself. Paul's quite clear that eating the meat doesn't change either the eater or the non-eater in itself. And that, you know, of course, lines up with what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 10 and 11. Here's what Jesus says. He called the people to him and said, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's not what you eat. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So we need to be careful with the words we're studying from Paul. The meat isn't the object of the sins mentioned, but the meat is involved in the two sins that come out in this text. So the meat presents the occasion. It gives rise to the occurrence of the two sins that we're going to be studying now. So here's what I see in these two texts. It's just like Sunday, isn't it? Point number one after all that. Point number one, there were mature, informed Christians who weren't at all superstitious about idols or about the meat that they were eating. So these Christians, they knew what Jesus said. What you put into your mouth isn't what makes or breaks a person spiritually. Food is food. Idols aren't real spiritual gods. The meat isn't changed by the idols. Don't ask about the meat when you're served. Don't make an issue of it. Just eat. It's not a big deal. So I get all of that from 1 Corinthians 8, two verses that make this point, 4 and 8. Verse 4 says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That's, that's a great phrase. That there is no God but one. Okay, we know that. And then verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. So that's the first point. There were these mature, informed brothers and sisters in Christ They weren't superstitious. They recognized everything Paul said. There's there's nothing wrong with the meat. But there's more. Point number two. There were many new Christians who had just come out of religions that treated idols as powerful spiritual gods. So, So they had renounced all of those idols when they were converted to Christ. It was a big step for them. You can imagine what a massive transition this was for them. Paul actually talks about this shift. When he writes to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, look what Paul says. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and here's the phrase I want you to notice, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So that's what these Christians did. They were involved in idol worship, a lot of them. And they, 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 they didn't want to go back to their past in any way, shape, or form. They wanted nothing to do with idols. Perhaps they still had old friends. Maybe they still had family members who were bound in the worship of false gods and idols and all the, all the rituals that went along with that. Maybe, maybe they were still praying for their loved ones to come out of those idolatrous religions. Maybe they just wanted to be really, really safe examples to follow. All we know for sure is they were deeply troubled. Many of these Christians who had been involved with idols in the past, they were deeply troubled by this whole idea of eating meat offered to idols. It just was a burden to their hearts. Now, so far, no sin has been mentioned in our considerations. Both groups, the stronger in knowledge, who knew that meat in itself wasn't a spiritual issue, and the more conscience-tender, weaker brother who still had enough bondage from the past to make meat-eating that was offered to idols, to make it a compromise with that recent past. Both groups were following Christ effectively, no problem so far. And now After doing that work, now we're in a position to see the two real specific sins that Paul deals with in these passages. Point number three, here's the first sin. The more mature Christians thought that their correct understanding, that there's nothing wrong with the meat, they thought that their correct understanding by itself made it okay for them. To eat that meat. That's the mistake. They knew there was nothing objectively corrupt in the meat. They knew Christ had freed them from all those outward legalistic regulations. They know their view was the correct position as far as the meat was concerned. They were right. And yet, with all of that going for them, They proceeded in a very sinful course of action. They pursued their own freedom in Christ without loving their less mature brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a sin. Not a sort of sin. It's a sin. They acted as though it was enough to understand the meat issue correctly. And it wasn't even close to enough. So, the mature Christians committed the first sin in these texts. Theirs is the sin that started the whole downward spiral, 1 Corinthians eight twelve. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak You sin against Christ. Now, the idea is repeated in different words, but it's still there in the Romans 14 text. Look at verses 15 and 20. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. What work? What work of God are they going to destroy? I think he's talking about restore, re- destroying the work of redemption that Christ accomplished for these people. I'll show you that in a minute. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong, not sort of wrong, wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So, so wounding this weaker brother's conscience isn't a sort of sin. It is... 1420 of Romans. It's destroying the work of God. Wow. This is a real guilt-producing sin. And it's almost as though the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to make this even clearer, removing any question whatsoever about the seriousness of this sin. It's like he can't wrap up the 1 Corinthians 8 text without saying, this more mature brother with his correct understanding, he is sinning against Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.12. I don't know how to soften those words. They seem to silence any effort at relativizing this sin. I said at the beginning there were two sins committed. We've looked at one. The first sin committed by the more knowledgeable person in Christ, just continuing to eat because their doctrinal understanding was correct, but not walking in love toward the weaker brother. That's the first sin committed by the mature believers. Here's the other sin, point number three. Following the lead of the more mature, the weaker brother or sister eats the meat against the convicting voice of conscience. I get that in the First Corinthians 8 passage in verses 10 to 13. Stay with this. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, of course he will. He's going to be encouraged. 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died, 12, thus sinning against, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You see two things, sinning against your brothers, you sin against Christ. So, so it's, it's all sin. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Whatever sacrifice I have to make, Paul says, not to make the weaker brother stumble. That's my job as a mature Christian. The other reference is Romans 14, 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So here's the second sin. The weaker brother follows the lead of the stronger brother and sins against his conscience and acts against faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, not sort of sin, sin. Now, we need to, as we wrap up, let's just do some deep thinking here, okay, about this text. The confusing part to many is the simple fact that the weaker brother, he doesn't really seem to be doing anything all that bad. I mean, sure, he probably feels a bit disturbed by following the mature brother and eating meat. But it's still just meat, right? And, and Paul seems to have already said that the meat was fine. There's no sin in the meat. But the words of the text, they don't seem to let it go quite that simply. Especially the 1 Corinthians 8 text, where there's, there's just no getting around those chilling words in verse 11. By your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. Destroyed is not a weak word, not a light word. Why did the Spirit of God lead Paul to use it? How can eating innocent meat... Destroy a person spiritually. Here's what happens. The best explanation, I think, is in that 23rd verse of Romans 14. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So here's, here's now the second sin, as I see it. This weaker brother or sister is emboldened by the loveless actions of the more mature. And so the weaker brother, even though he has to push past all sorts of strong warnings from his God-given conscience, he eats. Yeah, but Pastor Don, it's just eating meat. And yes, that's true this time. But the loveless example of the strong has helped create what can grow into a habit in the actions of the weak. There'll be plenty of other times, to be sure, when questionable moral issues are going to arise for this weaker Christian. And the stronger brother may not be around to help or to offer advice, and this weaker Christian will have to rely on the inner guidance of his or her God-given conscience. But there's a problem now. This weaker Christian has already been encouraged by the stronger Christian. He's already been encouraged to act against his conscience. So this weaker brother, because of the loveless example of the more mature, this weaker brother has been trained to act against his conscience. He's becoming more practiced at not listening to the inward voice of God. He's been training to commit additional sins in the future. And no wonder, Paul says, this weaker Christian has already been destroyed. He can't follow Jesus like that. It won't work. So there's two lessons here. They're really important. And Now we drill down into, we have to apply some of this. First, I see two lessons that go along with these two sins. We know what the two sins are now, right? The lovelessness of the more knowledgeable. He just goes ahead and eats because he has freedom to do so. That's sin number one. Sin number two is this weaker brother acts against his conscience. That's sin number two. Now I want to talk about two lessons to take home while you're at home, but to apply to our hearts. First, it is never enough merely to be theologically correct. We must all be lovingly safe examples to follow, and it is a real sin to use my freedom in Christ to trip up, a weaker brother or Christian or sister. And second, here's the second lesson, never go against the inner voice of conscience. True enough, there may come a time when additional understanding will come. We all can become more enlightened. Our understanding can grow, and it can change the way my conscience feels. But until that happens... Until you can act with the peace of God ruling your heart, always, always act in good faith, listening to the promptings of your conscience. It's not enough to be correct. Be a safe example to follow, even when it means limiting your freedom in Christ. No matter what it takes, be a safe example to follow. Secondly, until your understanding deepens and grows, always act faithfully in line with the God-given voice of conscience. And that's how you apply some of those texts. Good question. Good question. Thanks for submitting them. Bless your word now, Jesus, to our hearts. Help us not just to know it. Help us to, help us to learn it in the sense that we walk in it and apply it to our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless your church. Love one another.